Jeremiah chapter 7, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come to Jeremiah chapter 7 tonight. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, you'll be fairly lost on Sunday night without a Bible. So men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you just wave to them, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't uh, own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from uh, the Lord himself uh, tonight. We remember as we're studying here in uh, Jeremiah, we came uh, to chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 7, and chapters 7 through 10 constitute what are known as the temple addresses, where uh, Jeremiah was instructed by the Lord uh, to go to the very gate of the main entrance to the temple in Jerusalem and to speak these prophecies to the people who were coming in. He's addressing their idolatry. He's addressing um, their uh, hypocrisy. And he's not talking about pagans here. We're talking about the people of Judah. We're talking about Jews. We're talking about people that are God's people. And uh, they're living one life very different from God, uh, six days out of the week. And then the seventh day, they come to temple and they go through all of the motions. And so by sending uh, Jeremiah to go and speak there at the temple, he knew, number one, it would be for sure uh, the way to speak to the most people all at once, the crowds that were going uh, to temple on Saturdays during that time. Religion was flourishing while all of this sin and hypocrisy was going on. And it also assured that Jeremiah would be speaking to the exact audience that needed to hear what he had to say. And so he picks things up, and we pick things up in verse 21 where Jeremiah is continuing his initial address. And he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings uh, to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers nor command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, uh, the uh, exodus and the time of establishing the feasts and giving them the law and so forth. He said, I didn't um, you know, command them in that day at that time concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices, but this is what I commanded them saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk, you notice the word obey, and here's the word walk, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. And so the Lord is calling them to obedience and to walk in his ways, his desire to bless them. And Jeremiah, basically what God is doing through Jeremiah here at this point is he's simply reminding Jeremiah and also uh, Judah itself that they had this very long history of being very um, uh, dutiful in the offering of the burnt offering sacrifices and other sacrifices, bringing them to God, uh, but not adding to those sacrifices their private and personal obedience to God. And God, God, when he speaks here, he's not minimizing the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. That's what was in place prior uh, to Jesus coming, all of it speaking of Jesus. But what he's communicating once again to the nation and to us, that no sacrifice means anything to God unless there is obedience uh, behind the sacrifice. It's uh, for those of us who are parents. You know, as you're raising children, 
and they can come and give you whatever, and you look at them and go, I don't want anything until you start obeying me. Uh, nothing you can give me will mean anything to me until I have that expression of your heart toward me. You want to show your love toward me the highest way that you can? It's not by making a project in school and bringing it to me or whatever it might be. It would be simply to obey me. And that's why Jesus spoke, as we saw last week. He said, uh, if you love me, keep my commandments. Without obedience, nothing else that we do, no service, no sacrifice, no anything uh, means anything uh, to him. It hurts his heart. And he is a heavenly father, so he has that kind of a heart toward us. Obedience is what he wants first. Then the sacrifice, all of those things then mean a great deal to him, but not when there is the one without the other. And yet, verse 24, they did not obey or incline their ear, but they followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts, and they went back uh, word and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I mean, there's been a long time they've had this kind of hypocritical relationship with God, um, not always in an equal measure. They're certainly on the a low point at this point. I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them, yet they did not obey me uh, or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. That's a word for rebellion against uh, someone or against uh, God, and they did worse than their uh, fathers." Verse 27, therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. Uh, so here he has Jeremiah. Again, we remember the very beginning of the book. Jeremiah is going to spend 40 to 50 years of his life. I mean, you only get one life, right, in this life. And so pretty significant for a human being. Think about it. For a human being to invest 40 to 50 years of just one life that he gets to experience in a ministry where he is not going to see one single recorded convert to the message that God is speaking through him. And, and so you might be tempted to look and say, what a waste of a life. No, it's not a waste at all. He had Jeremiah offer this message, calling on the nation to repent, number one, because the invitation was an honest one, an open one, in the hopes that they would repent. But if they didn't repent, it would make them responsible for having rejected uh, the message. He was establishing their responsibility f before God for the judgment that was going to come uh, their uh, way. But again, we see uh, God speaking to the Lord, to, to Jeremiah rather, of the fact that uh, it won't be effective. Jeremiah, they're not going to listen to you any more than they are listening to me. And, and, and in this, Jeremiah realizes that um, the treatment of the people toward him was just a microcosm of, uh, of their treatment of God. He was being able to sh share in the, the suffering and uh, of God. And so you shall say to them, this is a nation that does not obey. It is not that they cannot obey. It does not, uh, does not obey. This is a, an indication that they're personally responsible, that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor uh, receive correction. And so here he is, he's going to list some of the sins that he's condemning them for once again. 
their uh, disobedience to God, uh, their unwillingness to receive uh, correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth, and so uh, they disdain truth. They don't want to have any contact with truth. They don't advance truth. Cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation in the desolate heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken uh, the generation of his wrath. Uh, For, and that's a reason word, the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, uh, says the Lord, even though they were doing it in secret. Uh, There is no secret. The whole world is God's living room. And so they thought they were doing it in secret. Uh, I don't know if they had on Kevlar. What's the thing that Superman can't... uh, Kryptonite, there we go. This is a very highly educated uh, congregation that we're dealing with. You read the comic books too, right? Okay. So I say that affectionately, by the way. And so, um, so here that he can't see, he sees everything. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. Um, they have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to pollute it. And now this is the, the height of their blasphemy against God, is that they not only came into the temple to worship God, um, with a hypocritical heart, living a life of willful disobedience against him. But then they started to bring in all of the various idols and gods from the surrounding nations and putting them not in the courtyard, but putting them in the very temple. The temple represented, and especially the Holy of Holies, it represented the very presence of God. And so to take these idols, these nothings, these that people worship in the world. I mean, think about it in the context of the holiness of heaven. And those things are brought into God's presence in the temple, and they're put there, and then they do that as if that's no poor reflection upon them and a, a... affront to the heart of God, and yet this is what they were doing. They couldn't do anything worse to God in terms of showing how far away from the heart of God and God himself that they were. And so the idea that they had kind of come into is, again, uh, the God of the Bible and all of the gods, again, were just kind of the, the lucky rabbit's foot or whatever good luck charm or something. And so, yes, we worship Jehovah and all, but, you know, we want to hedge our bets and worship all of these other gods too uh, because they no longer knew him as the true and the living God and everything else is nonsense. And so they began uh, to uh, bring all of these uh, um, you know, idols in and putting them in the, in the very, uh, you, you know, in, into the, the temple itself. Just an awful, uh, awful thing. And, and you notice how God sees it in verse 30. He doesn't say, and they've set their idols in the house, which is called by my name. He says, and they have set their abominations. That's how God viewed it in the house which is called by my name, and they have polluted it as a result. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come uh, into uh, my heart. They were sacrificing at this point in their history 
their children to the false gods in the valley of Hinnom, uh, right outside of Jerusalem. It's interesting if you ever take a trip to Israel, most likely the tour bus will not stop in the valley of Hinnom, uh, you know, for a teaching or anything. It's not a bad idea, though, but uh, you will drive through it, and it's awesome to think about, you know, what happened historically in that uh, one of the several valleys that surrounds the elevated city of, uh, of Jerusalem. And, uh, but what they did is they would take their children and they would offer their children uh, to uh, these false gods, principally to the god of Molech. The god of Molech was the god uh, of lust. And uh, so the idea was if we're going to worship the god of Molech, the god of Molech required the offering of a firstborn of a child. And the idea was that um, in order to gain the favor of Molech uh, and, and the greatest favor of Molech, you would offer him what is most valuable to you. And so they would then offer their children to Molech, and there would be the uh, image of Molech, whether in metal or in uh, some kind of stone or clay, heated up until it was red hot with arms out like this, and they would come up and they would put their babies in the arms to be seared and then tumble down into the fire. God's people. God's people. Part of the history of the southern kingdom of Judah and uh, Amalek, again, uh, the worship of uh, lust. And so uh, here is this, uh, this uh, uh, again, abomination that's occurring there uh, in Judah. It's interesting to me that to look, as I look at uh, Judah, and I never look at people in the Bible and think uh, this is something that apart from God or if I you know, was in the wrong place and seared my conscience and so forth that I'm incapable of, um, you know, beware when we think we stand lest we fall. And, and so I, I look at myself and I look at the nation and applying this, all of this to our nation that we live in, and I think it has a tremendous warning to us. Once a nation or a person leaves the, the safety and the sanity of the truth of God's commandments, there is no limit to what horrors we are capable of performing and then justifying to ourselves and to our fellow man. And human history is chock full of this kind of stuff. Our capacity for self-deception, our capacity to sear a conscience and convince ourselves that anything is right is absolutely frightening. It is one of the things that I pinch myself as a Christian for the privilege of knowing the Lord and being able to uh, read the Bible and have it fashion me on a daily basis because of what we can end up justifying as a culture, as a nation, as an individual. And of course, this offering of children to uh, the god of lust and, and, uh, and then mammon, the god of, of money and materialism, this very same thing. And, and I, I, sometimes I hesitate to bring it up, but you can't ignore it because I know it hurts people's hearts uh, where it's a part of their past. And I have no intention. There's the forgiveness of Christ. It's wonderful to realize that there is no sin, not a world of sins that is greater than the 
forgiveness that's found in the blood of Christ. We just had the March for Life in the United States of America a couple days ago. And uh, in the United States alone, not talking about the world, the United States of alone, since Roe v. Wade in 1973, 80 million babies gone. Never drew their first breath. Never did it. Never did it. That's more than the population of France or Italy. It's like an, it would be like an entire, the population of an entire nation to disappear. And that's just abortion in our country, not to say anything of the whole uh, world. And you think about here is the worship of uh, Molech, the worship of lust. If you're going to worship lust, what's going to happen? Uh, you're going to engage in sexual immorality. Engage in sexual immorality, what's going to happen? Unwanted pregnancies. And then what do you do with unwanted pregnancies? You get rid of them, and even though in your mind you don't take it the next step to where they were actually honest enough to do it in that culture, we aren't honest enough then to sacrifice the child, but it all goes back to this being a sacrifice to the worship of lust within our culture. You watch the, um, many of you probably did watch the, uh, the woman's march on the day after the inauguration. I, I mean, I'm sure you weren't glued there for hours, but uh, the different clips that came out of it and all. And to look at that and to see, I don't know how many people there, uh, the, and this is a feminist march and so forth, uh, uh, a uh, at least one pro-life women's group that wanted to march with the group was not allowed to march because, you know, they don't, you can't be anti-abortion and be a feminist by the definition of the organizers of the march. And so you see here all of this, you know, gigantic crowd and you look at it and the entire thing is a demonstration. It's not about women. It is about protecting abortion and protecting sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, heterosexual, and the LBGT agenda. That's what that march was for. And you look at the justification for abortion, the number of people, the broad diversity of people who see this as something to be defended now that they've been born. And you realize the mind, the mind, the mind, where it can go to justify something that if anyone came from another planet would say that is unjustifiable on any level, and yet it goes on. There's nothing new under the sun. This is the same old worship of the same old things with the same consequences and then the same uh, casualties that come out of it. We just don't have a big altar to Molech that we uh, do this in. We've jettisoned any pretense of worshiping God at all in, uh, in uh, all of this. One of the great things that is happening today, and it is an encouraging note, is that the younger generation, the post-Roe v. Wade uh, generation, the younger generation, and God bless them, is um, much more pro-life than the older generation. And they, t they tie all of this to the sonogram. And uh, now you have uh, women uh, coming home from the doctor's office and they have a copy of their sonogram and they put it up on Facebook apparently or something. I don't know a lot about Facebook, but you can do that. And here's the big thing. Uh, 
here's my baby. And, and the recognition that this is a baby, uninterrupted. This baby is going to be born and be just like any one of us and so forth. And so uh, just the science moving forward is making it harder and harder for people uh, to uh, defend what is happening uh, in, in our nation. The, the, the battle for the right to life, the battle against abortion, it can, it, it can never be lost it can never, as long as there's a Christian in this nation and in this world, whether through intercession or uh, helping people out or standing in front of a clinic or being a part of Modesto Pregnancy Cl uh, Center or whatever it might be, this is a battle we must not lose because we are the conscience of the nation in this regard. And it is a battle that is, is important to continue to fight, to continue uh, to make this stand. It was wonderful to see our vice president uh, give a speech there uh, at that, uh, the, the pro-life march that happened uh, just a day or so ago and, and, uh, and so forth. This is a, a, a tremendous uh, advancement. But when a, when a nation is in this kind of a place where this kind of a thing is going on, it's mainstream, it is uh, protected by law, it is uh, widely practiced by the nation, then that is a nation, I don't care on what age, that is a nation that judgment is going to come upon. And, and, uh, and, and when that judgment comes upon that nation or upon that world, then who in the world can complain when it does? Now, the interesting thing for us here, and, and uh, we'll leave this in just uh, a moment, but when we look at this and we see that the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians for much the same sins and disobedience, Judah is going to go into captivity to the Babylonians uh, for uh, the reasons that we're looking at. But there is a judgment that is going to one day come upon the earth that is going to make those judgments look like nothing. And it's called the Great Tribulation, the Great Tribulation period, where the world is going to reach a place in its rejection of God and in its practice of sin where God will step in and then judge the world in that tribulation period. And as surely as the prophecies in God's Word spoke of the coming um, uh, 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 judgment that came by the Assyrians to the northern kingdom of Israel, as surely as that came to pass and the judgment of the southern kingdom of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians, just as surely that judgment is going to come upon the world. And as the sin gets more and uh, greater and greater in terms of its practice, greater and greater in terms of its darkness, how, how much it permeates so much of the world and the direction that the world is moving in, uh, who is going to be able to stand up and call it unjust when, when it finally and ultimately comes? And so he declares here, therefore, again, verse 32, the days, uh, uh, again, beginning in verse 32, therefore, behold, in light of what they were doing here, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will no longer be called Tophet 
or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they, that is, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Babylonians, will bury in Tophet until there is no room. Uh, in other words, they will slaughter the adults in their invasion, uh, the, the adults who slaughtered their children. And the corpses of this people will be uh, food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. And so here is such a widespread slaughter of of the people of Judah. Nobody's going to bury them. Again, it was an absolute affront to a Jewish person for um, uh, a body, a Jewish body, to be left out in the open and then be eaten by birds and by animals. But God says that the sheer number of bodies that are going to be uh, judged in all of this and then the lack of people to bury them, that's exactly what is going to happen. And there won't be even enough people to frighten the coyotes or frighten the wild dogs away from chewing on the bodies. And then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall uh, be uh, desolate. And at that time, says the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings. The Babylonians, they're going to conquer uh, uh, Jerusalem here. They'll go into these tombs where the kings have been buried and probably loot and, or not loot, but, uh, you know, valuables uh, uh, buried with them and so forth. And uh, the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they'll pull them all out of their graves. They'll just disinter all of these, these bodies, lay them out on the ground, and they shall spread these bodies uh, before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they... The children of Judah have loved in which they have served and after which they have washed, walked and which they have sought and which they have worshipped. And they shall not be gathered nor buried, but they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. And so the Babylonians would come in as they did, uh, unbury even the bodies that were buried. The bodies would be left upon, uh, uh, upon the ground, and he's saying that all of the idols that you worshipped in the worship of the sun, the moon, the stars, all of this, the sun, the moon, and the stars are going to stare down on this uh, valley filled with bodies and won't be able to help a single person when just simple repentance and turning back to God would have spared uh, all of this. Again, in the Jewish mind, I don't know about other cultures so much. I know our culture and a little bit about the Bible. But in the, the Jewish mind and the Jewish culture, the worst thing that could happen to a loved one, again, would be for their body to lay out in a field unburied and, and untaken care of. You think about your own, someone that you love in life. I mean, if, uh, if my mother's bones were out in a field someplace, and I mean, it, or whoever it might be in your life, it would break my heart, my brother's bones or something like that. It would be something that would be an awful, awful thing to have happen. And, and so with the Jewish mind, uh, you know, thought, and all of it a consequence of their sin. 
They're playing with the Babylonians. The Babylonians are child, uh, child's play compared to our enemy and who we play with every single day in terms of resisting, and that's the devil himself. And then death will be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain in this evil family, who remain in the places where I have driven them, says the Lord of hosts. He says the people who survive the conquest of uh, of Jerusalem uh, and go into captivity to Babylon, and th- uh, they will wish that they, uh, they had died in terms of, of the battle. And moreover, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, will they fall and not rise? Will no one turn away and not return? Why has this people slidden back? Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding. This is, this is like a backsliding that they just won't come out of. Uh, so, you, know, you can backslide for a day or backslide for a week and you come out of it and go forward and so forth. These people are in a perpetual backsliding. They hold fast to deceit. They will not let it go. They refuse to return. I listened and heard, but they don't speak aright. And no man repented of his wickedness saying, uh, what have I done? And uh, And so, uh, no repentance among the people. Everyone has turned to his own course or to his own sin as a horse rushes uh, into the battle. If you've ever seen a horse in a movie or perhaps, you know, heading, heading straight into a battle, how fast they're running towards sin. This is how Judah was. They pursued sin uh, in that way, but like a horse running into battle, a horse unaware of the devastation that they're, uh, they're running themselves into, same thing was true of the people of Judah. Even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times, and the turtle dove, the swift, and the swallow, they observe the time of uh, their coming. And so here you have these migratory uh, birds, and, um, and they uh, follow the instincts that God has put uh, inside of them. And, uh, but my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. And so here are birds following their migratory instincts, but Judah would not heed the, this wonderful God-given thing called conscience. They were searing uh, their conscience uh, in, in refusing to follow uh, God's will. And so God says in doing this, I mean, they're dumber than, uh, dumber than the birds. And how can you say we are wise? And now uh, God speaks to the future of the spiritual leaders and, and, uh, and the prophets and so forth who misguide uh, the, were misguiding the nation, telling them nothing is bad's going to happen at all. We can continue to sin. We've got the temple here. We're okay. And so he says, how can you say we are wise and the, and the law of the Lord is with us? So the Jewish religious leaders were saying, nothing's going to happen to us. We have the law. <laughs> okay. Nothing's going to happen to us. We got a Bible in the house. Well, there's a little more to it than that. It's like cracking that thing once in a while and then knowing it from cover to cover and then obeying it. So again, even the word of God became like this 
a lucky charm. Nothing's going to happen. We have the law uh, of the Lord. And look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. And, and God speaks here about the false pen, pen of the scribe uh, certainly works falsehood. The idea is they were uh, reinterpreting God's Word to remove the demands of God's Word uh, upon people's lives in order to make it less demanding, more palatable to sinners and so forth. The wise men are ashamed. They're dismayed. They are taken into captivity. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Now, the person, in terms of the prophets and the priests and so forth, and any pastor or elder, anyone who fills a pulpit like this, what wisdom do we have except in the word of God? There is no other wisdom. I mean, what else are you going to preach? What else are you going to say? And yet somehow um, uh, they found a way to give some new kind of wisdom. I am so thankful God has made me the way that he has made me because I, I don't have a song and a dance. I've danced twice in my life. I'm glad there were no cameras to record this awful event of me attempting this very foreign concept, but it was peer pressure that was upon me so strong. And one time, my wife, she's, she made me do it. <laughs> I was in a wedding. Anyway, we don't need to go into all of that. But if I got up here and somebody said, listen, fill five minutes, just don't use the Bible, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. All I have to, and I, and I thank the Lord for it. I, I'm thankful for people that are much more talented than, than, than I am. But that's why when you come here and he says, oh, he's going to just tell us the Bible more, and uh, I sure could do with a few more stories and uh, this and that, it's not in me. Uh, and, you know, well, well, a couple of stories about myself are coming to mind really here at the moment. That it'll just be about 15 minutes. And so, well, let me begin. I was in kindergarten and uh, then, no. So, um, but what wisdom do we have apart from uh, what the Lord uh, gives us? And that's why the Lord says, not many mighty, not many noble, so forth, so forth, so forth, is because uh, we don't have anything else to say but what the Bible uh, has to say. And therefore, I give their wives to others. Now, that's the worst thing that could ever happen uh, to a married man would be to be taken captive by another nation and then watch his wife go in the distance to become the possession of another man. And yet that's exactly what was going to come their way. And yet the warning of it, even the warning of that, could not get the priests and the, and, 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 uh, uh, the priest to repent of their sin. You would think if God gave you that kind of a warning, you would say, okay, what do I got to do for something like that not to happen to be on the straight and narrow? God warns them, and the prophet and the priest here 
uh, even that doesn't make a dent in them, and their fields will go to whoever uh, will inherit them. Because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. That's the love of money. Follow the money. And so why were they massaging the Word of God? Why were they removing the demands of the Word of God? Why were they trying to comfort people in their rebellion against sin, in, in their hypocrisy, their idolatry, in their engagement and disobedience? Because they didn't want to turn off the money. Money was flowing into the temple or flowing into the church. The crowd was big. You got to keep that money flowing. And if you speak to people's sin or you push back upon that or make demands of people, they'll put their wallet back in their back pocket. And, uh, and so this is what they began to do. The concern for the flow of money rather than the holiness of the church or the gathering related to God became more important to the Jewish religious leaders. And again, as we mentioned last week, the health of any individual local church is never determined by its size, but by the godliness of the men and the women that attend that uh, church. The prophet, even to the priest, is given to covetousness Everyone deals falsely, for they have healed the hurt of my daughter, uh, the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, everything's going to be okay in your sin, your rebellion, no need to repent, don't take Jeremiah seriously when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. And so there was no sin that they would commit and there was any shame associated with it. We've talked about this earlier, uh, the loss of shame within a nation related to sin. And, but to just stop for a moment and, and think, uh, what sin does our culture blush at anymore? I mean, don't shout out right now. There may be one or two that I missed. We don't blush at anything. We don't blush at anything. I just put it on TV and grab a remote and see what's on there, but don't see too deeply. And then, you know, what goes for art, what goes for this, what goes for literature, what goes for music, and so forth. And I, I don't know that our culture has a capacity to blush anymore, and the loss of shame is the loss of something very, very precious, and it's a bad sign for a culture in terms of judgment. And therefore, they shall fall among those who fall, and in the time of their punishment, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things that I have uh, given them shall pass away. Why do we sit Still, and here is now the panic that is going to come upon the population of Jerusalem and Judah as a whole when the Babylonian army ultimately comes in from the north to invade Judah. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves. Let us enter into the fortified city and let us just keep silent there. Shh, maybe they won't see us uh, here. And so they see the armies coming in ultimately uh, as he's prophesying of it. They run to the fortified cities for the Lord our God is put us to silence, given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health, and there was trouble. The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan, and the horses of the Babylonian army are referred to God's horses because uh, they are uh, his judgment upon Israel. Dan was a tribe uh, up in the, the northern section 
uh, of the land, again speaking of the fact that Babylon would invade from the north. They're hearing the word of the invasion in Jerusalem in the south, and, and they're uh, trembling at fear concerning this. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones, for they have come. And that's something. They have come. They're here. It's happening. The prophecies are coming to pass and devour the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, God said, I will send vipers among you, vipers which cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, says the Lord. And Judah had kind of gotten away with a lot by uh, charming the nations around them in order to keep them from getting invaded and so forth in judgment for their sin. God says the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to be vipers and you have no capacity uh, to uh, charm them uh, in, in, uh, in any way. I would comfort myself in sorrow, Jeremiah says, and my heart is faint in me. Listen, the voice of the daughter of my people from a far country. And uh, so Jeremiah here, he understands and he can see the prophecies that he's prophesying is already happening. He already sees Judah in captivity in Babylon. It has, the news of this has no effect upon the population, but it has an effect upon him. And it's very interesting to notice this concerning Concerning Jeremiah here, he's completely vindicated in what it is that he's, uh, you know, what he's saying. All that he's been prophesying all of these years now ultimately is going to come to pass, and yet it wasn't any kind of gloating or any pride on his part. He was brokenhearted uh, over the fact that uh, he had to speak it, it wasn't listened to, and that the judgment uh, uh, came. And, uh, and all of it, of course, so unnecessary. And, and then uh, when Jerusalem was taken, the people were crying out, uh, is not the Lord in Zion, verse 19, is not her king in her? Where is the Lord to protect us? And uh, uh, you know, that's self-deceived into thinking now this is God's fault. Somehow he's uh, failed them rather than their own sin. Why have, uh, and the Lord then speaks, why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with foreign uh, idols? God was not to blame for this invasion or for this judgment. It was their own sin. It was not because of God's uh, lack of power. And sometimes judgment comes into a person's life in a backslidden state, and the first thing is the victim mentality. Well, God, why couldn't you? Why have you, you know? And uh, until they realize, no, my own sin has put me this place, in this place. The harvest is past. Uh, it, it, it is declared, God declares, the summer is ended and we are not, uh, we are not saved. The people, uh, rather, this is their declaration and Jeremiah's declaration concerning them. In, in other words, the opportunity to repent is, uh, is now gone. Uh, repentance is a wonderful word. It is a privilege to repent when I'm in sin. It's a privilege for me. It's a privilege for all of us to be turned from that sin and turned back to God. And it is a finite season. 
that can end at any time, and they had missed their uh, season. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt, Jeremiah said. Uh, I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. He said, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why, uh, why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? And so Jeremiah looks at them. They feel no pain for their condition in the coming judgment. He feels the pain. He sees all of it coming like a train wreck in a dream. He sees all of it uh, coming, and he's asking, is there a cure anywhere uh, for what is going on? And the only cure was repentance, and they were uh, not um, interested um, in that, uh, in that uh, repentance. Uh, chapter 9, and oh, that my head were waters, uh, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night, uh, Jeremiah says, for the slain of the daughter of my people. So here's one of the verses that tells us why Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He delivered a very, very hard message to God's people, but his heart remained soft um, through the entire, uh, through his entire ministry. And so, uh, if you've ever, I think probably many of us in this room have had a situation in our life where something happens, it breaks your heart, and you cry, 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 and then pretty soon what happens? There are no more tears. You can't get any more tears to come out. But you're not done expressing your broken heart related to the situation. And that's what Jeremiah's happened. He says, I've cried myself out. I have no more natural tears. Would you just make my eyes a fountain? Because a fountain of tears is what uh, is worthy of the heartbreak of what it is that I'm seeing and that I'm in the middle of so that I might weep day and night for what it is that's going to come uh, here uh, upon, uh, upon uh, the people. And this is this one of the uh, challenges that we face as God's people in, a, uh, in being a prophet for the Lord or being an influence for the Lord in a culture like the one that Jeremiah uh, was in is to remain unflinching concerning God's Word and yet to uh, maintain a soft heart uh, toward God and toward people in terms of the terrible price they're going to pay for their sin. And that's not an easy balance. I think that a lot of times I've seen through the years where uh, somebody uh, takes and uh, they, have, they have the tear side of things down, um, but then at the, and they show the care and the love and the brokenheartedness and so forth, but then they completely cave on God's Word. They will no longer speak God's truth into that life or into that situation. And then the other end of the spectrum is the person who will speak, you know, quite forcibly, uh, you know, sons of thunder concerning God's message in His Word uh, to, uh, against sin and against and related to the judgment that will come upon it and so forth, but they lack a heart of 
uh, compassion and, and a broken heart for where this sin is going to lead in that person's life. And Jeremiah shows this beautiful uh, combination of both things that I know I long for and you long for as well. It's this, um, this perfect combination of things that caused people, when they saw Jesus in his public ministry, uh, to identify him as Jeremiah from the Old Testament, the weeping prophet. Because he had, so when, when he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? One of the things that they said was, uh, some people think you're Jeremiah because they saw this perfect combination in Jesus as well. It's beautiful. It's commendable that we live in an age where I don't need to tell you is we're trying to be an influence for God everywhere that we are and uh, just trying to live for the Lord and so forth and how it's, it is a challenge not to swing to one extreme or the other, to maintain a broken heart for the consequences of sin in people's lives and yet remain unflinching related to God's uh, standard. God help me, God help us, um, you know, to... Uh, to be uh, in that place. And so what does he long to do in verse 2? He wants to escape. All of it's just too much. God, I can't see this. I mean, you have loved ones in your life where you just look and say, I can't know anymore. I can't see anymore. I can't, I, I, I know where it's all going. I can't, it's too much for me. And sometimes people feel that about the whole nation. Now, you're really amazing if you're able to take on the problems of the whole nation and, and, and do that. Jeremiah was kind of in that place because he'd uh, been called to that. All he wanted to do was escape. Oh, that I had in the wilderness. I want to get out of this city, all the sin that surrounds me, this terrible uh, thing, the hypocrisy, the idolatry, and, and all of it. I, I wish I had a little place out in nowhere, you know, no room service, no anything but peace and quiet, a lodge for travelers that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterers and an assembly of treacherous men. So he floats it out there to God. God, listen, all this is too much for me to watch. It's breaking my heart and so forth. Could you just give me like a desert ministry? I've delivered the message, but I don't want to stay in the middle of all of this and watch it go to its inevitable end. And the Lord said, oh, sure, yeah, it's a great idea. Uh, you're excused. No, God did not say that. He said, buck up, buckaroo. You have to stay in that place. And I've heard it from God in my own service to the Lord. And everything in you wants to just get out and go find some quiet place in life to escape it. And then God says, no, you don't get to do that. You get to do what I've called you to do another day, and you get to do it another week, and I'll give you the strength to do it. One of the interesting things is, is even though we can feel this in our lives, we are made to be in the mess that is this world. Sometimes Christians think about, oh, if we just had like a Christian country, please, somebody shoot me before that happens. I no more want to be around wall-to-wall -wall Christians in my life and then now, uh, instead of, you know, picking the world apart, well, we already pick ourselves apart bad enough as it is, as bad as the world around us. It's just cannibalistic in, 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 in a high regard. It's a, it's a sore spot with me. And, um, uh, but if you put us all together 
and you take us out of the spiritual warfare, out of a good fight, we will end up fighting one another over nonsense, uh, whether someone can wear lipstick or not. We've already been through these kind of, uh, of things. No, the fact of the matter is, as much as we may want to escape whatever it is that God has called us to be in the middle of, not only are we made for this, it's important for us to be in the middle of it, but it is vitally important for our growth and vitally important for our spirituality in growing in Christ-likeness. How could we ever reach any kind of spiritual maturity unless we are up against the spiritual warfare and up against all of the brokenness and the darkness of the world that we came out of ourselves? Now, it does something not only very, very good in the world by us being that and doing that, but it's something very, very important to us. God ignores, as best as I can understand the Word of God, all of these attempts, certainly that I've ever made to him, uh, these, uh, to convince him of, you know, providing me some nice little place uh, down in the desert in Southern California somewhere uh, to escape, uh, escape everything. We understand the emotion of it, uh, but we are made this side of heaven uh, to be in the mess and to be uh, salt and light, just like other people stayed in the mess that our life was at one time. Uh, we're just not as big a mess as we used to be on that in order that we might then come into the kingdom of God as well. But we understand uh, the, uh, the desire of Jeremiah. And like their bow, and he, here he talks about, the, you know, further kind of speaking about the, uh, the breakdown of society. And like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. And so, here are lies, you know, that are going back and forth, and terrible thing for a child of God, uh, for their mouth to be known for lies, and for those lies to be like arrows, doing all kinds of harm. Uh, help us, Lord, not to be uh, people who spread lies or make up lies. They are not valiant for the truth uh, on the earth. Isn't it wonderful to be valiant for the truth? Friendless sometimes as a result of it, but to be valiant for the truth on the earth. For they have proceeded from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. Everyone uh, take heed to his neighbor. Do not trust any neighbor, for every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slanders Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. And so what happens is, is that when a person develops a life of hypocrisy with God where I pretend to be one thing in his presence and I am something else entirely different away from, say, the temple or a church, we aren't able to compartmentalize a hypocrisy that well. So what happens is the very thing that we do to God, we then ultimately do to other people. And so we then, what happens then when you have a whole group of God's people that are backslidden the way that these people are, well, if they'll do that to God 
and wear a mask, a hypocrisy mask with God, then they'll do the same thing with people as well. And then pretty soon, you can't find a healthy relationship anywhere because a healthy relationship is based upon truth and it's based upon light. And so uh, here are all these neighbors, yes, and praise the Lord, and all these different kinds of things, and the talking and all, and and yet uh, they knew how to present themselves, but in the darkness, the reality of their own heart, they'd slit your own throat, talking behind your back, spreading lies about you. And so again, you know, uh, what, we, what we do to God then uh, ends up kind of uh, filtering out into other parts of our life toward other people as well. And so your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit, and through deceit, uh, they, uh, uh, they refuse to know me. Let's stop there tonight because we're out of time. How's that for a concept? <laughs> Only took me 32 years. What a f- great thing. It's that simple, really? Wow. Okay, let's enjoy that tonight. But we'll stop there and we'll pick it up in verse 7 as he continues uh, in, um, in, in much the same vein, uh, and, and we'll pick it up next time we're together. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we sing that song to you about uh, refiner's fire and, and purging us and burning away from our lives the uh, sin and idolatry and hypocrisy. And Lord, we've looked at a lot of things tonight, and any one of us can be completely given over to covetousness in our own personal lives and uh, uh, compromising in our relationship with you and in our obedience to you as a result of that. We don't want the money to stop flowing. Well, we see, Lord, that we are not very far away uh, from the applications of everything and what we've seen here tonight. And uh, we are all descendants of that very flawed uh, couple, Adam and Eve. And we pray that whatever mark the children of Judah in the time of Jeremiah's ministry that might be even in germ form in our life tonight, that you would use this time in your word to burn it away, completely away. We acknowledge tonight, every one of us before your throne tonight, our incredible and frightening capacity for self-deception, Lord. And we thank you for your word that is so simple and so clear and so unmistakable. And whatever tonight's word was intended to cut away from our lives, we pray that it would cut that away. Whatever it was intended to affirm and build up in our lives and in our relationship with you and our relationship with others, we pray that by your Holy Spirit it would do that good work as well. Thank you for this living book, Lord, that you have blessed us with called the Bible, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer for anything,